Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic Wear on Instagram at Picnic Wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No Flight Back Vintage, bringing fun new life to old things. Always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at No Flight Back Vintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room all while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the Party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. With an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between, Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Gentle Vibes Vintage. We are purveyors of polyester and psychedelic relics. We encourage experimentation and play not only in your wardrobe, but in your home too. We have thousands of killer vintage pieces ready for their next adventure. See them all on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Thumbprint is Detroit's only fair trade marketplace located in the historic Eastern Market. Our small business specializes in products handmade by empowered women in South Africa, making a living wage creating things they love like hand-painted candles and ceramics. We also carry a curated assortment of sustainable and natural locally made goods. Thumbprint is a great gift destination for both the special people in your life and for yourself. Browse our online store at thumbprintdetroit.com and find us on Instagram at thumbprintdetroit. Blank Cass, or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles by embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blank Cass lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcass.com. Located in Whistler, Canada, Velvet Underground is a velvet jungle full of vintage and secondhand clothing, plants, a vegan cafe, and lots of rad products from other small sustainable businesses. Our mission is to create a brand and community dedicated to promoting self-expression, as well as educating and inspiring a more sustainable and conscious lifestyle, both for the people and the planet. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. For the month of May, St. Evans is supporting Labor Behind the Label, an anti-sweatshop campaign working to improve conditions and empower workers in the global garment industry. 
New Vintage is released every Thursday at wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at where underscore st dot evens. That's where St. Evans. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that has yard sale fever. Seriously, this weekend, yard sale season officially began out here in Lancaster County, and Dustin and I had the wildest day of yard sailing. Very, very exciting. Anyway, I hope you all like yard sailing too. I'm your host, Amanda. This is episode 74, the second episode of Labor Month, and there is so much in today's episode. And we're going to do things in a different order than we typically do. You know, usually we start with the hotline messages, work through some interviews, etc. But things are going to be a little different. First, we'll hear the last bit of my interview with Shelby. We're going to talk about her business selling secondhand and returns with a few stops along the way at yard sales and my favorite, Value City. <laughs> Next, Close Horse All-Star, Danny of Picnic Wear, dropped by so we could talk about something that has been on both of our minds and maybe yours too. All of these big retailers slash fast fashion brands that are collabing, and I use that in quotes, with small makers and designers, often in these sort of like marketplace setups. If you're a small business owner, you will not want to miss this conversation, and you might want to share it with your small business friends. And then, as if all of that wasn't exciting enough, I have two work stories via the hotline from members of our community. I'm just going to say this now before I forget, before I get all wrapped up in the excitement, which I will, keep the work stories coming. You know that adage, the personal is political? Well, Essentially, it means that our personal experiences create our political beliefs and our values, our ethics, and sharing our stories helps other people shape their own beliefs. And more importantly, it helps them see their own experiences and sharp focus. And maybe for someone who hasn't had these kinds of experiences, it just opens their eyes to what's broken in the system. I am so excited by all of the possibilities of sharing all of your stories this month. So how do you share your story? Well, you can email me at amanda at closehorse.world. You can call the Close Horse hotline at 717-925-7417. And that voicemail will cut you off around two minutes, but just call back and keep talking. Call back until you're done. I will edit the messages together via the magic of technology. And I do this all the time. So don't worry or feel like you're giving me extra work. Or if you have a, a long story or the idea of all these breaks makes you nervous, just record a voice memo on your phone or computer and send it to me. And like I said, that's especially great if you have a longer story. If you want to be anonymous, which is totally fine, please tell me in your message, whether that's an audio message or an email, and I will ensure that any identifying details about you are removed. Next, 
I am required as an aspiring professional podcaster to remind you that if you're interested in joining this group of the coolest people out there by supporting my work on Close Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash Podcast. You can also send a direct donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. Thank you to all of you who already support me, whether it's with money, by recommending the podcast to others, sharing our content on Instagram, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, or just listening all the time. It's I'm so grateful for all of it. You know, we're getting close, just a little bit closer to one year of Close Horse, and I can't believe how much it's changed my life. Um, and that wouldn't have happened without all of you. So I'm so grateful. <laughs> Okay, well, now that we took care of all the housekeeping, if you will, let's jump into the episode. If you haven't listened to the previous episode with Shelby, please go check that out. Shelby is a wealth of information about garment workers' rights, and she has extensive experience as an activist fighting for better working conditions and a living wage for the people who make our clothing and everything else. In this part of the conversation, we're going to talk about her side business, selling secondhand and returns. So let's get right into it. You do something totally different now. Um, you don't work in the tech industry anymore, correct? Um, so I do as my main job. Okay. So I don't work at a tech company. I've worked at a few different tech companies, um, but I work for a nonprofit here in Pittsburgh. So I have like a main job, um, but then I have my side business, C Shelby Boutique, where I am a reseller um, of all different types of garments to try to keep as many of them out of landfills. And I feel like this is like a perfect fit for you, actually. <laughs> you know what I mean? With your history and with what you know, like when we talk about buying stuff secondhand or, you know, reselling, it's it's not even just the environmental impact, but that, you know, it's like honoring all the hard work, all the brutal days, all those UTIs that people yeah. got to make your clothes. It makes it extra sad when you think about just throwing it away. Yep, exactly. And, you know, one thing that I, I always remember, and I actually went on the Solidarity and Marriage program as a student as well, like when I was during, in college at Penn State. And one thing from that trip that I always remember and is kind of speaking to this is, so we were at the border of Haiti and there was a market there, um, you know, that there was a particular time of the week that Haitians were allowed to cross the border into the Dominican Republic and sell their goods there. And the majority of it were clearly, um, you know, probably donated goods um, that people did not need there. I'm talking like high heel shoes. I remember seeing Victoria's Secret sweatshirts, like, and the people that we actually met with, they said, you know, hey, like, you know, you know, you mean well for this, but what we actually need is dignified jobs. We need uh, houses and clean water, um, you know, not your donated goods that, you know, again, like maybe you think they're not going to the landfill, but most of the stuff does end there. Um, I mean, people at that market, for example, are selling it like I'm talking like pennies, like in U.S. money, like because they didn't need it. Um, but yeah, like it's it's disgusting, like you said, to think about after the fact of going through all these abuses people had to make the clothing, then 
you know, someone wears it a few times and then it actually like just goes to the landfill in most cases. It makes it extra super sad. You know, when you take a step back and think about it, I mean, every time I think about that, like it's, if that doesn't make you want to keep buying secondhand, I don't know what will, but it's like, we have to make all of the like energy, both like, you know, figurative energy and actual energy and, you know, all of the resources that have gone into making these clothes, why wouldn't we wear them until they just disintegrated, you know? Yep. Exactly. So, you know, I started learning more about the environmental impact of the fast fashion industry. So, you know, again, I was previously um, primarily focused on learning about the human costs, which are extremely important, but there's also this environmental side. So, you know, while I didn't necessarily have, um, you know, the capacity to do like a whole bunch of uh, organizing around these issues, I learned about you know, reselling and how I could go both thrifting, which I absolutely love. Um, I love going to the Goodwill bins and saving items that likely from there, you know, would end up in the landfill and redirect them to people who can actually, you know, provide value or receive value, I guess, um, you know, from those items and, you know, hopefully extend their life. When did you start reselling? So what's interesting is I actually did a version of reselling actually before I even learned about sweatshops. Um, it's a kind of a roundabout that I made, but um, you know, yeah, I grew <laughs> up going to you know thrift stores and yard sales with my particularly my mom. My grandma growing up, I had a love for it. I love a yard sale. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, you know, even then I was just amazed that there were all these valuable items that were at these places that, you know, people are selling for hardly anything. But, you know, it's clear that it, the likelihood of someone happening to go to that thrift store at that particular time that can find value of it was a lot less likely um, to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't really know a lot more about what was going on then. But yeah, I, I realized that, you know, I came from like a lower middle class family and I had a, you know, knew I was paying my way through college and stuff like that. So I actually started a little business where there was an indoor flea market in my hometown, Johnstown, Pennsylvania, uh, called Value It. And actually, the building used to be a Value City store. And then I went out of business oh my God. with the CMY. I, <laughs> I have so many memories of going school shopping at Value City. Yeah, me too. <laughs> me too. Yeah. Did they all, did all, is Value City gone now? I think it might be. I don't know. I think there. I think I've seen there's like Value City furniture stores or something like yeah, that. Uh, but yeah. I don't think there's like real value Value Cities anymore. R.I.P. I still love going to Value City with my grandma. Me too. <laughs> Actually, I'd go with my Grammy, like literally for school shopping every year. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, sorry, no, I just got excited fine. to learn about Value City. So, indoor swap meet, not Value City. <laughs> yeah, yeah, so it was Value It. And I had That's a couple, so ridiculous. I know. I had a couple of little, um, like, indoor flea market booths there. Um, you know, I also started uh, selling a few, some things on eBay during that time just to make extra money. Um, you know, but I was doing this a little bit throughout college. And eventually, I, um, you know, I, I had moved to the DC area, so I closed my value at 
stores. Um, you know, I kept doing eBay a little bit, but I did have a terrible experience with eBay. Um, I no longer sell there. And actually, like, I mean, I can say what happened. Um, I don't want to yeah, discourage someone from like using a reselling platform, but I, they're like my least favorite. Um, if you're going to try it, um, basically, like I had done that all of the, these years and I had graduated college. I was, um, you know, moving in DC. My mom actually, she has some health issues and she actually, you know, had to have like an emergency surgery anyways. And so like I had messaged the people who had bought the items I was selling at that time, um like hey like these are gonna be delayed you know a few days to be able to be shipped and like no one cared um I had like high ratings across the board and basically I guess my ship time like fell below some sort of standard eBay had so they literally banned me for life like (gasps) what yeah and they're like you can't even like create a new account I guess like because it's like tied to like your PayPal or something, which is tied to, I don't know, like something specific to your person. And like, yeah, like even my mom, like she has an eBay account. And I guess like for a time, like I still like had her address or I'm not even sure something attached to my, like my account that is now like closed and like eBay support would contact her and saying like, are you really Shelby? Like, you know, like as if I had like maybe like made like a, separate account but it was my mom like you know what I mean like it was like intense oh my god you know I will say um I used to sell stuff on the eBay a lot not not for a very long time like 10 years or something but I something that Dustin and I have talked about a lot is like early eBay adopters and long time kind of eBay customers as well is that we had noticed over time eBay really to such an extreme level cared less and less about sellers and more and more about customers. And, you know, like you deal with some scammy weird people anywhere you sell on the internet. And you like, if you are a seller, you need to know that at least on some level, the platform is going to protect you. Like I feel like Poshmark, for example, does protect their sellers um, from being scammed by customers, but like eBay doesn't anymore. And the fact that you would be banned because you're not shipping fast enough is like more proof of that. I mean, that is wild to me. Yeah, I actually, I remember it clearly because this really affected me, right? Like I, I didn't know of any other platforms at the time. Like this is something I really loved doing. Like it helped me like make extra money to make ends meet. And I, I called the customer service and this woman, I think she actually felt bad for me, but she like, and like wanted to help me, but she like literally wasn't allowed by eBay. And like something like the time like during the time that I was having issues shipping in a certain time frame, like didn't have the exact date. My mom had the surgery. I told her something very strange with that. She's like, yeah, like, you know, we, unfortunately I can't do anything at all. And I was like crying on the phone, like to her. Cause like, I was like, but, but <sighs> I've like always had good ratings. Like I like, am like a seller like that you should care about and like things like that. And she's like, yeah, I'm really sorry. Like it's for life too. Like, you know what I mean? That is crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Like anyhow. Wow. So I kind of went, I guess, dormant from reselling for a bit. Like, I think I had even like done a little bit after that on like Craigslist or like researched a little bit about other platforms, but I didn't really, you know, I, I was kind of like, I don't know, like, like bummed out and, you know, really put down from that. I just was shocked. Um, but what happened was my friend, um, told me about Poshmark. She had, uh, this was back in, I guess, 2017 now. So flash forward a few years. 
Um, and she knew about it as a buyer and she was like, Hey, like, I think this might be like something that you might like. Um, you know, I was still thrifting during this whole time, mostly just for myself. Um, and so I checked it out. I was like, Oh my God, this seems to actually be like what I've always been looking for. And they were very clear that they were, you know, not only customer centric, but seller centric, as you said, Mm -hmm. I just, I gave it a chance. So I, um, started selling some First, some of the stuff I had around my house, like from my own closet, um, then, you know, expanding to thrifted items uh, back in November 2017. I loved it. Um, you know, around the same time. Uh, so I also was living at Pittsburgh at this time when I discovered Poshmark and I discovered the bins, the Goodwill outlet, and I like became obsessed with it. And (laughs) yeah, I know this has been brought up on your podcast before, but if anyone doesn't know, it's, you know, you can buy things by the pounds in these, you know, like crazy big bins. They're changed like every 15 minutes or something. I always try to explain it to people that it's not for like the faint of heart thrifter. (laughs) Definitely not. No. (laughs) I remember the first time I went, I was like shocked. So there's two outlets here. And the one is, I think, like way more like intense. And not this one was the one I went to. There's like a yellow line behind where the bins are. And basically when they, they switch out one of the the lanes of the bins, they, they announced that people have to stand behind the yellow line. And then there was like, like a bullhorn or whatever, like sound when they could go. And then people would like literally rush, like to get like the first chance to look at what was on the bins. I was like, so taken aback. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty, I mean, uh, we actually live really close to some bins here and you can find treasure there, but it's, it's stressful because there are people who are there like all day, and they, it's like they have territory, I feel like. And you can't just like jump in and be like, oh, I just want to grab that thing real quick. Well, first off, you're not going to just grab something real quick. It's like you can't just pop in for five minutes, you know? It's like a, it's such a thing. But when you find stuff there, man, I recently got a chair there for $2.99, just saying. Yeah, yeah, like – I just, I guess, conditioned myself to to deal with all of the craziness. But yeah, because I would find lots of new, brand new items, like new tags, um, sometimes designer items even. Um, because what's happening here is like, not only is it stuff that didn't sell at the regular, um, like retail Goodwills in the region that's sent there, but there's also sometimes stuff that hasn't been able to be processed yet. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, because they're either overloaded with items, um, you know, from donations, or sometimes at the outlets they accept donations themselves. So this is like the first time anyone has looked at it. Um, so yeah, I got super like almost like addicted to it. I guess I would say because it's so cheap. Um, I think it's a dollar twenty nine per pound here um at least for textiles so like imagine like you know a t-shirt how much that weighs right and like you know from like a pound and if it's a dollar 29 per pound like imagine like a brand new shirt with tags or something designer like you're getting it for pennies and you're able to you know i always of course clean the stuff when i bring it home um and then take good photographs of it listed on poshmark i also now sell on like a few other platforms too but yeah, bring it back to life and find someone around the world that actually can find value from that item instead of that, you know, totally fine item, again, that went through that whole entire process to be made. 
and get to where it is today, ending up in a landfill. So that's, that's what I, you know, ended up doing and I love it. (laughs) That's amazing. So I know that you also resell returns. Yes. So basically what happened with that is I, during the early on in the pandemic, you know, I wasn't able to go to thrift stores for a period of time. Like they were closed. And by the way, um, you know, that was a whole issue. While thrift stores were closed, people were still piling up donations outside. Like it was to the point that they had to like beg people to please not leave your donations here. Like it was getting like soaked in rain. Like they just could not process. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. I was seeing that here. People were just because people were at home and they were bored. So they were like, this is a great time to like Marie Kondo my house. And like you would drive by the Goodwill and there would just be like just trash bags and cardboard boxes that were falling apart in the rain and just like furniture mm-hmm. that people just abandoned there. It was so upsetting. Yeah. <laughs> and it was to the point that when they did a reopen, they had so much of a backlog that at least in my local Goodwill, they started doing these warehouse sales where I could actually buy pallets of unprocessed stuff. Whoa, that's wild. It's like your own personal bins. Exactly, exactly. So I was so like in my element during that time, like like, probably appreciate that I was taking up the entire basement with like trash bags of random stuff. But you know, it is what it is. (laughs) Right. Um, Anyhow, so back to the return. So during that time, though, that the thrift stores weren't open. I was like, where am I going to get, um, you know, my inventory from? So I started doing some research and I really didn't know before about the whole returns situation from retailers. Like I did not know that the majority of things that are returned by people, like you think, right, that they're going to go out on the floor again. Like if there's nothing wrong with it, anyhow, like, you know, just didn't fit you or something like that. You think like, Oh, it'll be resold to another person like me. But a lot of the case, that's not what happens, I learned. Mm-hmm. And especially stuff that's damaged um, does not, right? Um, and a lot of that stuff actually ends up, a disturbing amount gets either destroyed, like it's totally fine still, but it costs more to uh, the company, like the brand, to actually try to move it further to someone else that can utilize it than to destroy it. So they just do that. Like, it's crazy. Um, But if it doesn't, um, you know, in the best case, it might be recycled. um, But usually it's to the landfill. So totally fine stuff. Just being destroyed or landfilled. Like, and I was like, what? This is insane. Um, Yeah. So I just continue to do some more research during this time. I had a lot of extra free time, you know, outside of my regular job. Um, No, it wasn't like obviously going out to hang out with people or anything at that time. And I learned about the stuff that is saved um, from returns is usually liquidated. Um, And I learned about that, you know, this could be like shelf pools items that, you know, were on the sales floor, but they didn't sell in a period of time anywhere to the damaged Mm -hmm. goods. And I found some companies that, uh, you know, seem to be, you know, trusted and vetted that were purchasing these items directly from the brands and like huge amounts and in pallets. And then I was able to purchase those items after they were vetted by the companies um, for myself, for my reselling business and, you know, get those delivered to my door. So that has been a, a second sourcing area for me ever since. 
Yeah, and there is so much of this, like, unsurprisingly, like, I feel like, you know, much like workers' conditions and everything else we talked about earlier, that this whole returns thing is such, like, a secret as well. And when I found out about it, you know, I was very, very bummed out. I mean, I have to also say that I have worked in this industry my whole adult life, and I didn't know what was happening to returns. That's how like top secret all of this is. I definitely did not know that most of these returns were being trashed because I would have stopped my returnaholicism a long time ago. Yeah. I would, like a lot of people, order 10 things, get that free shipping or whatever, have it come, keep one, and send it back. The likelihood that another person wore any of those things ever again after I returned it is so slim. It makes me so sad. Um it's exciting to me that there is this entire industry developing where people are buying this stuff and, you know, it's going to have a chance to be worn. Like that is amazing to me, but it sounds like it could be kind of risky because you don't necessarily know what you're going to get, right? Right. So the way I do it, I, you know, for the price point that I buy stuff at, I don't get like a, I guess like a roster or manifest or something of what's in it. I think there are some, you know, companies that sell things that have that, but even so, like you don't know what it actually will be till you see it in person. Right, right. But yeah, so it's definitely a gamble. Um, I have received some palettes that like I was shocked by, you know, the high quality that was in there, like tons of designer items and great condition, lots of new with tags, brands that were actually, you know, really popular at the time, um, to receiving large proportions of what I, I guess, like, I don't know, maybe you know what it might be. I, I assume they might be samples, but it was like, basically like the stuff was new. It had like a tag on it, but like they had no sizes on it. And yeah. sometimes like there would be like a tag on the inside, but it wasn't a regular type of tag. It'd be like someone wrote in pen, like some basic information about the garment on it. Like it was really weird. Yeah, that would definitely be samples. And I mean, I cannot emphasize enough the scale at which these samples accumulate in a buying office. Um, My most recent job was on a a large buying campus of multiple brands. And once a month, they had a truck come around from building to building and all the assistant buyers would stack up boxes, like 50 boxes of all the samples from previous months that they didn't need anymore. And so it would be multiple samples of the same thing, maybe in different sizes or different iterations, or maybe one was used for the photo shoot, you know, that kind of thing. And they would just haul it all off onto, to another like large building where I'm assuming at some point they're going to sell it all off. But that alone, the sheer volume of sample clothing that gets wasted is kind of wild as well. Very depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I was shocked when I started learning about that and then, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, too, you know, there's stuff that actually is damaged, like not that it just didn't sell or what have you, um, you know, but what happens to stuff where like the zippers broke or like, you know, during the retail experience, maybe it got like a little like smudge on it or a tiny hole or whatever the case might be. Um, so, yeah, I... Yes, it's risky, but I have been buying palettes where it's usually a mixture, you know, of that spectrum. Uh, But that kind of brings me to how I found Old Flame Mending, who introduced me to you, Um, you know, over (laughs) this time, like basically the past year um, of expanding into the liquidation 
purchasing. I have accumulated more and more items that, you know, I can do some basic, you know, fixes myself. And there are some things like depending on what the flaw is, like people, you know, as long as you point it out and take pictures of it, like they'll buy it as is. Um, But there's lots of stuff that I get that there's just no way to fix it. Like, or like, there's no way to sell it as it is, I guess is what I'm saying. Right, right. Um, Yeah, I can't just like, put it up with like no zipper or like there's like a massive <laughs> hole or like right. you know this huge stain um or sometimes we've even gotten stuff that like I think just during the the process of being in the retail environment like it clearly was like um you know dye from another garment that like got imprinted uh, on it like stuff like yeah. that anyhow so I was like what can I do with this I personally don't have neither the expertise or nor the time to like try to fix all this stuff. Um, I wonder if it would be possible to work with people who could, you know, professionally upcycle these items or, you know, some cases it's a simple mend, um, you know, to, to help save these items from the landfill, because definitely I know if I were to like donate that stuff, like who's going to buy it, you know, it probably wouldn't even end up on, you know, the thrift store, uh, you know, retail floor, like I can't donate to a nonprofit, you know, or anything like that, like right. broken as it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I did some research and I found actually an article um, that Old Flame Mending was mentioned in. And I reached out to them, kind of explained my situation that I'm pretty much constantly, you know, receiving you know, a large amount of items like this that also when I go thrifting, sometimes I find items that, you know, again, similarly damage, but they could be fixed and there would be a lot of value for them. Or even like vintage items that like the fabric's really cool, but the way that is designed is like, just no one's going to wear it right now, basically. Like, you know, Mm -hmm. and if it was, um, you know, redone, you know, it could actually be something that people would love. So I started working with them and actually just yesterday I like posted my first batch of what I'm calling the revitalized collection that I am doing with partnering with Old Flame Mending. That's amazing. But yeah, you can check it out. Um, You know, my Instagram and my Poshmark handle where they're listed are both uh, S-E-A-S-H-E-L-B-Y-B-T-Q, like boutique is abbreviated. Um, so yeah, I'd love if people like, even if you just want to provide feedback or things like that, that'd be awesome. I can't wait to go check it out. I think it's so cool. Also, I love that that's how you found one another. (laughs) I know. I know. It's like such a small world. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. I was wondering, I was like, oh, maybe everyone in Pittsburgh just knows each other. No, no. I found (laughs) an article and then looked up their Instagram and messaged them on there. And then, you know, just met up and, you know, it worked out. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's amazing. I love that. Um, Well, I'm so glad that we got to talk today. I feel like everybody who listens to this is going to learn so much and hopefully get really riled up to do better and make a difference. So if you don't have an answer for this, it's okay. It's a big question, but do you have any final advice or parting words for everyone? I would say that people should remember that they actually do have power to make a change. I feel like a lot of folks, they sometimes will learn about this stuff and just get really disheartened and think like, oh, well, you know, what can I do? But at the end of the day, you do have power, both as a consumer and the purchases you make. 
also in the ability to educate others on what's going on so they can also make informed decisions. And again, as I mentioned, there are lots of ways if you do have, um, you know, the ability to spend some time, even if it's just a little bit of time to uh, do like activism around these issues, if you are, you know, uh, inspired to do so after learning more about the abuses that are happening in this industry, there are so many ways you can make a change. And it's really when everyone, you know, as individuals come together that we can actually make a difference. I love that. And it's true. I think it's easy to feel overwhelmed and feel like I'm just one person. What could I possibly do? But that is exactly the opposite of how you should feel. Exactly. It could be as little as, you know, next thing that you want to buy, check out a thrift store, see if you can you know buy it secondhand or, you know, check out Poshmark or something like that. Um, or it could be just, again, telling your family member about what you learned and, you know, hoping, hopefully inspiring others to, you know, make a different decision in, in how they are interacting with the clothing that they wear. Thank you again, Shelby, for talking to me literally for hours. I'm I'm so grateful for it. And I'm sure everyone who has listened was so excited to hear your stories and thoughts because I know I was. If you're missing Shelby already, go check her out on Instagram at cshelbybtq. You can find her on Poshmark with the same username. And don't worry, I will, as always, share that in the show notes because maybe all of you don't have a massive jar of scented pens sitting right next to you like I do. (laughs) Okay, well, next, it's Danny of Picnicwear, and I know you all missed her. It's been a while. She reached out to me last week about, well, you know, what we're going to talk about in this conversation, and I rearranged my episode plan because I really wanted to get this into all of your ears ASAP, because I think this is really important. So let's give it a listen. All right. Well, I have a very special return guest, someone who you all know very well, but who I actually think hasn't been on the show in a while, which is crazy. Uh, Danny, do you want to remind everyone who you are? Hi, everyone. Yeah, it's been so long. I feel like the last time we chat chatted was um, a couple months ago when I was talking about my kind of desire to start building up picnic wear as like a cottage industry. And I've gotten mm-hmm. a little farther with that. Um, but that's not what we're here to talk about today. <laughs> no, no. We're we're actually here to talk about something. You know, it had been on my mind and people have been reaching out to me about this. And I just wasn't – I wanted to talk about it on the pod, but I just wasn't sure how to frame it up yet. And then you and I started talking a few days ago about this and I was like, okay, yeah, we have to talk about this on the pod. Yeah. Well, because I got an email and of course I was like, who do I share this with? And you're the first person that I was like, okay, this screenshot (laughs) of this email goes to Amanda because she's going to love the shit out of this. So yeah, thanks for being that friend for me. (laughs) Of course, of course. I mean, I, you know, well, we're going to talk about it in a second, but I definitely have been seeing this coming up more and more. And I think it's, I haven't even said what it is yet, <laughs> but I think it's because big retailers and big brands are getting hip to what we're doing yes. on the internet. 
You know what I mean? 100%. That is a perfect segue because I think that, so what Amanda is gesturing at is <laughs> this whole concept of these larger brands, these household name brands reaching out to smaller, independent designers, makers, upcyclers, whatever, and asking them to collaborate. Yes. Or collab. I feel like everyone says collab, but that always sounds weird to me. I always say collab, but who cares? It doesn't fucking matter. <laughs> <laughs> but that is the noun that mm-hmm. is being used in these conversations. And I feel like, I mean, spoiler already, it is not a – it's a disingenuous mm-hmm. use of that term because it implies yes. some sort of partnership – that isn't really there. And that's what's so disappointing because what is it that we all need right now? A little bit of fucking real collaboration. Like we all do need to hold hands and like, like get the work done together. So the fact that this word is getting thrown around in so many different ways, Uh. it's like brands is one thing, but then this whole influencer thing too. Like if I could like count the number of DMS I get about from people wanting to collaborate, meaning send me free shit and half the time, like, you know, they have nothing, they have no idea anything about your brand. So it's like, how is this a collaboration? If you don't have, you don't actually support what I'm doing. You don't know what I'm doing. You don't know that each of my items is one of a kind. And it would actually cost me quite a bit of money to just like send you something for free. And, and also I, I, I can't keep up with production. So anyways, I'm going on a tangent. That's not what this is about. <laughs> no, but I hear you because I don't even have anything to sell. <laughs> And I get these collab e- these collab okay, messages all the time now too. Say. People who want to collab, collab, yeah. collab, collab with me on the podcast. And then I'm like, great. Like, have you listened to it? Right. And then they're like, no. And I'm like, well, then you don't even know. You'd know that you could call the hotline. Yes, yes. Just call the hotline and you're collaborating. You're collaborating, right? I'm like really open yeah. to true actual collaboration. But if you like don't know right. who I am and you just want promotion, like I – are you kidding me? You must not even be following right. me on Instagram for that long because you know that I am full of crazy idealistic beliefs. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> Do you want your name associated with you me? You might not, hmm. you know. Just kidding, of course. <laughs> I mean, I certainly do. That's why well, I should be thank calling you. more often. <laughs> you should. You should. You got to call. I mean, we've had a lot of your work stories here on the pod already, but like I'm just yes. saying, maybe you have some other ones. Oh, I've got plenty. I, I don't want people to get sick of my voice. And I'm so <laughs> excited by all the new voices I get to hear that I'm uh, like, oh, no one needs to hear from me. Me too. I mean, we always need to hear from you, but I am so excited by all the new – every time I get a new voicemail from someone I've never met or know from like social media, I'm like, oh my God, it's another person yeah, to know. It's yeah, so anyway, exciting. Anyway, this is turning into a love fast, but really what we want to <laughs> is hit, do some hard-hitting news. So yes. anyway. <laughs> okay. So collaborations with brands, that's what we're talking about specifically. Um, I'm just going to cut to the chase and say like, we should all really tread lightly. And like, of course, it's so exciting when you get a DM or an email in your inbox. And it's from this like, really noteworthy brand. And they want you and you're like, holy crap, like, this is insane. I've been discovered, you know, like, Mm -hmm, whatever, mm -hmm. whatever your reaction may be. But I just think we need to stop, pause, ask ourselves a few questions. 
and text Amanda, whether, text Amanda, <laughs> and acknowledge whether I mean when I texted you, I had fully acknowledged in the latter situation. It yes, was more to did. be like, "Is Mama proud?" I was um, very proud of the way I reacted. You, you, you nailed it. You nailed it. Just the right amount of sugar and spice. Yes, exactly. Um, but before this situation that I'm alluding to with this email I showed Amanda, I had another situation that I'm not quite so proud of because I feel like I got sucked into something and I'm not proud because I feel like I have the experience and I have other friends' experiences that should have led me to make a better decision from the get-go and not waste literally months of time before I realized it was not the right move for me. Right. So basically, um, I got contacted in December um, by this huge brand, this like literally like over a century old brand. Um, so I was like pretty shook when I saw this email and they wanted to collaborate with me. And I was like, Oh my God, Danny, you have to make this work. Like you are a brand new brand. It's a pandemic. Um, you can barely keep up with the production on your own platform, but Hey, let's try and like create a whole production run for this huge brand. You can do that. Um, obviously insane. Um, (laughs) so (laughs) we emailed back and forth for quite some time. I, in a way, I kind of feel like because I've been in the industry for a long time, like, and I know all the jargon and the language, like maybe I did kind of misrepresent myself in a way and make it seem like I knew what I was talking about more than I did. (laughs) Like, I'm not even kidding because I like, you know, I know all the terminology. So like, maybe they thought like, oh, she's got this, even though I said, I've never done anything like this before. I'm going to need some hand-holding. So, you know, I I think the responsibility goes on both sides a little bit. Um, And at the end of the day, they're a massive corporation. I was pretty clear about the fact that I'm like a one-person-run business. Right. So they should have been, you know, holding my hand like I asked them to. Exactly. I agree. I agree on that. Yeah. So we went back and forth for a while. Um, I told them what it would cost for me to do. So basically they wanted me to use their vintage fabrication in creating some hats. And it was like to them, a tiny, tiny run. It was like 40 units. Mm-hmm. To me, that's, that's huge. Yeah. I mean, if anyone who follows me like knows that like when I do a run of hats, it's like between 10 to 15 <laughs> and that's like busting my ass to get them done in a month. So like 40 is, is a big jump. Um, So I told them what it would cost um, because I wasn't going to sew them myself with 40 units. I couldn't do that. So I was going to have to, you know, work with some sewists. I live in New York City. Mm -hmm. I pay above minimum wage Mm -hmm. and for my sewists based in New York. And um, so I told them what it would cost. And that was obviously padding a little bit in there for me as well, because of well, course as, I need yeah, to be paid. Like that's, that shouldn't be a surprise that I would need to be paid right, for this. Right. Not to mention, I at, by the end of this, like, uh, let's let's uh, give away the ending. No hats were made, uh. um, but I certainly spent a ton of time on this. Didn't get paid for any of it, of course. So, anyways, I told them the price, and they said. Ooh, I don't know if this is going to be workable. Um, we need it to be this, which um, was about half of the price. Of course, I, I mean, them. dude, 
as the buyer, as the, as a professional buyer, I'm on the other side of this. Like, yeah, yeah, I saw this coming. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, you know, took a beat and I was just like, yeah, I'm still going to do it. I'm not going to pay anything, get paid anything. I'm going to lose money, but I am going to get a new crop of eyes on my brand, a different, you know, like maybe it's a different consumer set that haven't been seeing my stuff. Um, and it's just like, it's, you know, this fucking brand, which I'm not saying, but like it to me was like, whoa, you know, I mean, I know who the brand is and this is fucking major. Yeah. It's cool. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Yeah. And someone who's obsessed with vintage like me, like it's, it was a big deal. Very big deal. So anyways, um, I was like, okay, I'll do it. So emails go back and forth. I had initially like proposed a calendar, which is why I say like, I feel like I kind of fooled them into thinking I was like, (laughs) I knew my shit because I like, you know, you I'm know an organized person. Though. You know your shit. They, I'm telling you, they did not like meet a single deadline. Like literally months. Like this dragged out for months. Like she didn't know where the fabric was, how it was getting sent to me. She thought I had already received it. I hadn't received anything. Eventually, I get this bolt of fabric in the mail. And she had sent me photos of it and I love the print. And I had described to her like what kind of fabrication it needed to be. And I was like, you know, like a canvas type. It can't be like really lightweight, um, but something a little bit more structured. This fabric, Amanda. I'm getting stressed out. (laughs) Oh my God. Well, as soon as I got it, I was like, oh, I get it. This is liability fabric. They didn't know what to do with. Right. I mean, that's what I was expecting for sure. yeah. Yeah. So liability fabric for anyone listening is like leftover fabric, um, that needs to get used up or they'll like lose money by not using it or they'll lose money by it sitting in a factory mm-hmm. or a warehouse for too long. Yeah, because they get charged storage for it even. Exactly. This happens all the time. And what mm-hmm. usually happens with that liability fabric, well, two things happen. Either someone turns it like you order something that you're not even excited about, that you barely put any work into just to use it up and know that it's going to go on sale or you're just like, we're going to eat it, let the factory destroy it, which means like, yeah. you know, burning it. Yeah. Yeah. Or we're going to send it to a small <laughs> upcycler independent maker, pawn it off on her and see if she can oh make some hats out of it. God. Anyways, it was this like really, really coarse upholstery fabric. Like what? I can't even describe it. Like I'll send you a picture of it after. It's crazy thick the woman had never seen it before <gasps> i she knew that was coming photos oh, of it too god uh. so i tried to sew it on my machine broke some needles i was like at this point i was pretty livid because this had been going on for so long and not to mention at the same time she finally sent all the paperwork to me <sighs> And there were so many things in there that I was like, are you kidding me? Like the terms of payment, it was like a 90 day payment terms. <gasps> are you Except, serious? Yeah. Net so 90? To, oh my yeah. God. So I would have to pay all my SOAS out of pocket and wait 90 days to get paid that back for bullshit. it. That is bullshit. And that is, I just want to say to everyone who's listening, that is not the standard 
No, it's not at all. And I actually didn't know that at first. I was like, is this normal? But I did ask around a few people and they're like, that's not normal. And then what makes even matters worse is if you did insist on getting paid within a month, you would have to discount the fee by like 10% or something. <laughs> like, like I hadn't already given them a, a discount. Yeah, this is crazy. This is insane. I am And then outraged. there were also things because like – I had asked actually early on because um, since like January 1st of this year, um, because of Brexit, there's like this new VAT, like value added tax for Mm -hmm. importing goods into the UK. And I had no idea whether like I would be responsible for that. And they didn't really, she was like kind of confused by the question because I don't know (sighs) if I phrased it right because I don't, I've never worked with Right, right. So, but in this, it was like, that was part of it too. I was going to have to like, pay the VAT. And then it was like, um, what else? Like all the shipping terms, which like, I mean, all of this stuff is just so foreign to me. I had never done anything like this. And like, why didn't she tell me about this stuff from the get go? She waited until I had the fabric in hand. This is so infuriating and so unprofessional. Yeah. So (sighs) in the end, I, I thought about it. I had some conversations with my mom, with Jason. I was like, what am I doing here? I had some conversations with myself. Why are you doing this, Danny? Mm-hmm. And what it came down to was ego. I wanted to do it for my ego. I didn't want to do it for my business. Why? I've got a lot of followers. Okay? Right, right. I, ca- I can't keep up with the supply. So what? I'm going to get more followers that I can't make anything for? Mm-hmm. How's that a good move for my business? Right. So at the end of the day, I realized like I I can't let my ego drive doing like this making this bad business decision. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to cut my losses. I emailed her back and I was like, look, I know this has gone on for a really long time. I feel like there were a lot of things that like could have been a little bit clearer communicated to me from the get go. Um, And this is just not going to work for me, unfortunately. And, you know, I got a response back and she was like really disappointed. And then I responded back and I asked like, where, what can I do with all these, this fabric and crickets. So So you still have it? Yeah, I still have. I started pawning. I gave some of the fabric to Mary when she was here the other day. I don't know what to do with this upholstery fabric because some of it was canvas. Like she had Mm -hmm. sent me swatches of some stuff. But like this bolt of upholstery fabric, hit me up if anybody wants it because I don't know what to do with it. Um, (sighs) And it's a big bolt. (laughs) I think it's probably like 10 meters. I can't remember exactly. But anyways, um, so that was at first I felt like really disappointed in myself. But then I was like, they lost nothing. They lost nothing. I lost everything here. I lost all my time. Like this person was still getting paid by her company for all the time she spent back and forth with me, you Mm -hmm. know, like Mm -hmm. they pawned off this liability fabric on me that clearly they don't want back because they didn't respond to my email. Um, (laughs) So I felt disappointed with myself in the end, but um, that's why I thought I would bring this conversation to you because I feel like with my experience and, and, and I still got sucked into it. Um, and I don't want that to happen to others. And I think that everyone should really like think things through. If someone's not giving you all the information you need from the get go question, why? Mm -hmm. Um, and then 
so this all came up with you because I got an email from another brand that like immediately when I saw it in my inbox, I was like, nope, didn't really take much. Um, but they told me that they were starting a new eco-conscious community marketplace. And would I like to be involved? And my response was literally, um, no, thank you. Not, um, just no, thank you. (laughs) Best. Have a great weekend, Danny. And then they got back to me and were like, oh, can I ask why? And this is where like the proud mama comment comes in where I (laughs) thought you'd be really proud was because I pretty gently, um, I was very kind because I know that the person on the receiving end is not the massive corporation. They are an employee. And they were working on the weekend. I just want to add yeah. that. When you sent me the this screenshots, was I was Saturday like, at noon. yeah, that's shitty because it's a company we know and we know that those people work seven days a week. Yeah. Uh, and it's really stressful. <laughs> like, I'll just yeah. say that. Yeah. Yeah. So that's why I was like, I need to be careful because like, I don't want to offend this person. So mm-hmm. I was I was very clear, like, hey, this is by no means offense to you, but I just think that your brand creating a new eco-conscious community <laughs> marketplace seems like some pretty blatant greenwashing to yes. me and not something that I want my brand associated with. Um, and then there was some, like, emails back that I was just like, oh, I'm not going to even – I've said all I need to say. Yeah, yeah. You didn't you know? need to say more. But I will – No. And and just for some background, this is a pretty huge fast fashion company. Uh, it is a company that is on the list of brands who have refused to pay up. Um, mm-hmm. It is a brand who has really no sustainability practices whatsoever. No. Uh, even the fact that they're trying to do this greenwashing uh, is really surprising to me because they've never made any attempt to remotely do anything ethical or sustainable. Right. Uh, so this seems to be them saying like, and something I've been talking about a lot on Instagram and on the podcast, like companies are like, oh shit, like sustainability is a hot trend. Like we need to get in on it rather than changing what we do, our practices, mm-hmm. let's just create these marketplaces Yeah, right on the coattails of all these small makers who are struggling to do the right thing. Right, right. And there's no, and there's no struggle for them in this, in this situation. No. Nothing. There's no lose. It's all wins for them. There's such small units to them that even if the product didn't sell, it'd be a drop in the bucket. It wouldn't matter. But for the maker, it would matter a hell of a lot. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's a very um, uneven, unfair uh, relationship. Like that's why when I like in the beginning when I was like I wouldn't call it a collaboration because there's no partnership. It's yeah. kind of like I bet you need some money. Mm. How about you help me out here by like letting me buy your stuff? And well, let's talk about you know why you turned that offer down as well because this is something that is coming up a lot on social media. Mm -hmm. I'm seeing it a lot. I'm seeing brands that I would consider to be like your size doing, saying yes. And I understand why, Mm -hmm. like this is a judgment free zone. If I were in Danny's position, it would have been a very difficult decision for me to make. Right. And I don't know what decision I would have made. Yeah. Yeah. Well, a thing that I want to remind people is that the price that they would be willing to buy for the product is much less than I would sell the product for. So I would be getting less per item than I do selling on my own platform. Um, And not to mention 
that energy that I'm spending on creating this product for them, I, I'm not spending on creating my product, which is more lucrative. Right, right. So that's that's a loss there. Yes. Because I'm making less money and I'm also not being able, there's not two of me to be to be making also my product at the same time to be selling on my own platform. And I, I will say like, I fully acknowledge the fact that like, I have a large following. And so my decision to not proceed with this was, was easier because I don't have that incentive of like, oh, I could get more followers by doing this. A lot of small makers are struggling just to get their stuff seen. Mm -hmm. So that's why I feel like it could be a little bit of a more tempting um, offer Mm -hmm. to them. Oh, yeah. But I still think in that situation, really, really think it through, there might be better ways to spend your energy in getting that following that don't involve um, working with a brand that's, that's going to really just profit off of you and, and not only profit, but Amanda, you brought up something that I hadn't even thought about at the time, which is like basically using you as a testing strategy. Yes. So using your product where, like I said, they've got nothing to lose. They don't have to reach the minimums that they do with their factories overseas. They're putting your product on their website sells out so fast. Oh, interesting. This must be a trend. Whatever mm-hmm. you're selling of their item. Maybe next season instead of just selling this designer's work, we can just make one for ourselves cuz we already know cuz we tested the water that people like it. Oh, so there yeah. there's they're gaining even more from you. Exactly, exactly. And this is like something on the buying side that I have seen happen time and time again at a lot of different jobs I've worked. So it's not like one company that I'm calling out here. This is a very common practice where you might bring in something from a brand. It might be a big brand. It might be a small brand. If it's good, if it performs, you're going to be in a meeting where your boss says next year, we're going to make this ourselves because we yeah. want to make more profit off of it because they're never going to make as much profit off of buying stuff from say you Danny as they will by just making it themselves because remember you're paying everyone a living wage they're not and right. so they can get those that extra dollar or 2 dollars or 10 dollars off of every unit they sell and this is par for the course i've been in so many meetings where you know, we have a grid on the front wall, someone showing everything that they're buying or developing for this delivery. And at least half of it is stuff from other brands that they are going to make their own version. Oh, yeah. Yeah. For sure. Always. Always. And if like, seriously, if something you've sold to them does well, I can guarantee in a year, you're not going to be selling it to them anymore, but they're going to be making 10,000 more. Will it be as cool? Of course not. But this is yeah. a very beneficial situation, especially when I look at like you specifically. I mean, we've talked about this before, even on the pod. Like you're using vintage towels. That is a that fabric does not exist in a large no. scale right now. I don't even know how they would copy that, but they would figure it out. It would it wouldn't they'll be a find spin. a way. Yeah, they'll find a way, <laughs> and it will be cheaper for them, and yeah. it won't be sustainable. No one will be paid. It won't be ethical, and yet. It will still make them a ton of money because their customer was introduced to your idea. Um, And I think, once again, like if I were in this situation, it would be a really tough 
call for me. I was talking to someone Mm -hmm. else who received a similar offer and they were like, I don't know what to do because if I say no, they're going to copy me immediately. Yeah. And if I- But that's the thing. They're going to do it either way. I know. I know. So just don't do it, you know? I mean, again- no judgment if you do. <laughs> right, but, right. Yeah, totally. But like that can't be your reasoning. I, I think that's really tough to have that be your reasoning for proceeding is because then they'll copy you if you don't. Now They're going to copy you no matter what. So Yeah, yeah. These marketplace concept situations, as far as I can tell, are not very beneficial for the seller. So let's like – let's go through all the reasons why they're not. Well, for one – you're going to get paid less than you would have if you had sold it directly to the customer. So mm-hmm. you, they might be buying it wholesale from you. And in that case, you're going to be looking at half of the price you normally sell it for. And that's in the mm-hmm. best situation because, man, I was having so many flashbacks when Danny was talking about like bringing the price to the buyers and then being like, uh, actually, we're going to need it to come down. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So that's if they're actually buying it, for it from you. But what might be happening is it is a consignment or dropship model, which means mm. that they never actually buy anything from you, and they only pay you if it sells, and they take a fee off of that. So no matter what, you're not making as much money as if you just sold it directly to a customer. So if you're going to pursue this marketplace model, this is something for you to think about. You want to know the terms of that deal. How much are you really being paid? And when do you get that money? Mm -hmm. Because if it's consignment or dropship, it might be a while. Yeah, and also like who's paying for shipping? Who's paying for packaging? Like ask all the questions from the get-go. Like anything you can think of. Um, definitely. I have some friends who have done dropship for, for brands out there, meaning like their stuff appeared on the site, but they were the ones who had to do the fulfillment, meaning like mm-hmm. packing it up and shipping it. And they were required to buy using their own money packaging that that company approved. So, oh, wow. yeah. So like, that's another thing. These are all the questions you want to ask. Um, so that's, that's one thing to think about that. It may not be as lucrative as it seems. Next is really thinking about what does it feel like to have your brand that is you. Like, like for example, here, mm-hmm. Picnic Wear is Danny, okay? Mm-hmm. How will it impact your brand to be aligned with that brand? Yeah. Um, like, really thinking that through. Like, will that make people think that you don't actually care about sustainability or ethics? Will it make you them feel like you're down with greenwashing? <laughs> you know, think about it. Like right. they're using you to greenwash mm-hmm. what they really do. And and once again, like these decisions are so hard. It's like something I struggle with all the time where I'm like, man, it'd be really cool if I could get some of that like advertising money from Squarespace or something, you know, to pay my bills. Right. Uh, so I I understand that, you know, and there's no wrong or right decision there, but it's just something you want to think about what that impact will be because ostensibly the reason you're supposed to want to do this is because it's going to get you brand exposure. Right. Speaking of collaboration, if this is a marketplace or what have you um, that you've seen other small makers actually featured on is maybe reach out to them and ask them what their experience was like. Yeah. Um, 
in a lot of situations, that's just like a one person run business. And they might be willing to tell you like it was a positive experience. I wish I had known this before. Um, so that I, I recommend, um, trying out. And by the way, I was uh, this, I decided to talk about this on your podcast because I was in a clubhouse room and it came up and some people were like, you know, a lot of other small makers should hear this. Um, and one person had a really amazing recommendation for these big brands that would actually benefit the small makers is like, what if these brands, instead of coming at you with this kind of arrangement, which clearly can be really, really hard on a small designer, what if they actually said like, we want to offer you a grant and all we ask is that you like maybe mention like sponsored by, or like thanks to like a couple in feed posts where you mentioned this brand that gave you a grant that I might consider. I mean, maybe not with specific brands, like if I really, you know, don't agree with them, but with some brands that would actually be helpful for my business. And I think it would look really rad. Give the clout that they're looking for to these mm-hmm. bigger brands. Mm-hmm. I thought that was pretty, pretty genius. I agree. I so agree. If, you're, if you work for a big brand um, and you're listening, maybe think about proposing this as an idea. Cause I could definitely use a little bit of cash. Um, and depending on the brand, I might be willing to take it. You know, I, I don't want to take my money from assholes as well as not give me assholes. <laughs> right. But. <laughs> right. But I mean, you know, like your definition of who's an asshole is going to vary from person to person. Totally. And depending Absolutely. on the size of that grant, you might see the long-term benefits of that for your business and like changing the world. And in that case, that would that would make sense. Like that's not an easy answer either for everyone. You know, or I would also say like, listen, if they love your product so much, how about we turn this into a mutually beneficial situation? Because them letting you sell your stuff on their marketplace is barely beneficial to you, but massively oh, yeah. beneficial to them, right? Why not just do an actual real collab? Like mm. early in my career, uh, collab madness was sweeping the nation, and oh, yeah. I, I worked for a very like with opening cer- ceremony totally, and everything. Totally, yeah. everyone was doing it, and I came to my boss and I said, "Hey, what if we did?" a collab with someone from Etsy because this was early in Etsy when Etsy wasn't as wild Mm -hmm. and crazy as it is right now. Like, cause I was like, there are some cool people making stuff on Etsy right now. And, you know, we worked it out. I found a person. Um, we did a really cool collab where like we paid her for her designs. We paid her a royalty fee for every unit we sold. We still made tons of profit. So she designed Mm. the things. She made this like original samples and I found a vendor to manufacture them. And she had a final approval on every sample, on the labeling, on even how we were going to sell it on the website and in the stores, the hang tags. That's amazing. You name it. And it gave her a huge boost for her business. And, you know, it gave us that like cred that we were searching for. Now that is what these these companies should be doing because yes. that's going to get you real exposure, Absolutely. not just being on their website in some marketplace. Right. Because they don't actually care about you and as a brand, as a brand in, no. in, in these situations. But no. what you just described sounds like they do. Sounds like they are really trying to help you out and build up your brand. Right. Right. And I will tell you, this protected that designer from being knocked off. Like the language in the contract, which I had to help work on, specifically stated that if the next year 
there was something from her from that collection that had performed really well the previous year. If we wanted to run that again, we had to pay her again. Yes. Now, yeah, the royalties thing. Right, awesome. right. And I'm just going to tell you that we made a shit ton of money off of that collab. It was very profitable. Like nobody lost out. <laughs> so I know there's a way to do it. And that's why I get really frustrated because I've done similar agreements at other jobs I've had. It's not that much extra work. It's possible. Yeah. It didn't yeah. cost us a ton of money. And it maybe meant that we made 50 cents less off of every unit we sold. Who cares? That 50 cents right. for every unit we sold was wildly beneficial to the designer. Yeah. And that's also like, you have to think about like, that's like real time money, but like, what about that investment in the future of your brand and how your brand is perceived? Like you get that 50 cents back just by like having this really amazing real collaboration with a, with a brand. Um, so I, you know, that's 50 cents well spent. In my yeah, opinion, I think if so you're too. a brand, like in this climate, you know, oh, I know. And I just feel like, you know, we've talked about how greenwashing is just laziness and cheapness. It's saying like, we don't want to actually do the work or spend the money to do things the right way. This is the same way for them to be like, you know, we kind of have this like reputation for copying small designers and like people think we're right. not cool. We're trying to get to be cool again. We're trying to show that we're relevant. And we notice on Instagram that there are all these amazing makers making all this cool stuff and there's like a community around it. We need to tap into that because that, like I'm telling you, there are trend meetings going on in the offices of these companies where this is coming up in conversation. Like they are talking about the makers in our community and yeah. trying to figure out- how do we out, profit off of this? Yes, exactly, exactly. Like this- How do we get a piece of that pie? They're going the laziest way to kind of steal our power and our energy and I, I don't like it. And that's why I like every time someone messages me about this, I'm like, oh- I'm so yeah. torn on all of this. Like if I could give anyone advice for when you receive that message, that invitation to partner with them, mm-hmm. which by the way, I just want to say uh, from your email, your very first email that you got from that company, Danny, I was like, this is a really underwhelming pitch, by the way. Yeah. It was just like, hey, how would you like to collab with us by you know, selling your no stuff? No information. No information. I was like, this feels both either lazy or uh, predatory, and I can't decide. <laughs> or also, like, not entitled, but like, like we are so cool that we don't even need to say much. You should be like so excited just by getting an email from us, like that mm-hmm, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like, like this, this you know, requires no further explanation. Yeah, yeah. I've talked you to know? a few people who are style influencers and they have had similar experiences with that company where they get like really condescending sort of like uncool emails about how like basically honored this person should be to be included. You should be so in lucky. Yeah. yeah. And I think they should be so lucky to get to sell your stuff, okay? To get to work mm-hmm. with you because once again, they need you. You don't need them. And I think like, that's the one thing you need to think about. So we have we have friends, mutual friends, Danny and I, who have successfully partnered with these brands because they have demanded things on their terms and mm-hmm. they have demanded a mutually beneficial situation. So if someone reaches out to you like that and this is a brand that you – 
you feel good about working with, then you need to demand the best for you. Yeah, and that's really hard. The worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to say no. It's hard because it's hard to know what what to demand. Right. And this person that you're speaking of, like she had been in the industry for many, many years and had worked for this brand. So she kind of had like some understanding of like what the possible risks were, but like most people don't. So that's, what's really hard. And that's why you really need to tread lightly because unless you have someone in your corner who like has some experience with stuff like that, like I didn't know all, all the terms and everything, like what to ask for. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I I actually should have, you know, in hindsight, given my experience. So I can't imagine someone who doesn't have like any experience in the industry, how they would even know what a good agreement looks like. You know, you're making me think I need to make a video about this. Oh, hell (laughs) yes, you do. That would be Uh, awesome. Just because I was gonna be like, oh, you can just, everyone can just message me and I can help you. But like, that would be really overwhelming. There's probably so many people who either have already been approached by brands or like it's common. So it would be a really, really valuable tool for people, I think. Not that I want to like add more work onto your plate because... No, I'm going to think about it. I'm going to write that. Maybe I'll do it in the next week. And I think it ties into Labor Month. I think it's a great resource for people. It does. Um, Yeah. I think this is going to come up more and more and more because this this community is picking up so much momentum. They're getting scared. We're making them scared, I know, guys. guys. This is good. This was the point. That's right. This was the point of what you're doing. And I was like... Danny, you've only been a picnic spotware has been around for like a year. Yeah. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a freaking pandemic year. So I don't feel bad about the fact that I can't like figure out wholesale yet or anything like that. Like, gotta take our time, you know? Like, hustle culture, you know, is naturally embedded in me. And I, it makes me feel like I need to be like, you know, 10 steps ahead of where I am at any point in time, but like, it's okay. It's okay. We got to chill out. And it's also like, what's tough is that the consumer, including you, including me, as much as we want to not believe it, we have been influenced and ingrained into like wanting to see development and newness really, really rapidly. Mm -hmm, So like, mm -hmm. I also have this like added fear that like all of a sudden I'm going to be able to increase my productivity and no one's going to want it anymore because they're going to be onto something else. Ugh, I hate that. It's a real fear because I feel like, you know, that's, this is, and it's no one's fault. It's natural. It's natural because of where we've been conditioned to, Mm -hmm. like what we've been conditioned to feel about like, wanting things like you want something until you want something else you know so yeah yeah no I mean listen I hear you on that I think about that all the time for the people in our community and like you know sometimes people reach out to me and ask me like what I think they should do next and I have to balance that belief that you have to constantly have something new with the reality that you just have to have you have to constantly have something that is 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 who you are that mm-hmm. represents your brand and you don't need to be innovating on it constantly because that's your signature thing. And I think, you know, there are brands that have been around, like the heritage brands that have been around for 100, 200 years, selling the same thing over and over again yeah, when they like totally. slip up. I, you know who I always think of is a company that just like totally 
blew it by trying to be too trendy was Converse. Because mm. when you think about Converse, you think about the really basic black and maybe cream, you know, the high top, the low top. Yeah. Maybe here and there, like a different plaid or something like that. But right. like not a ton of innovation there. And I remember in the beginning of my career, I worked in shoes. And Converse would come. They would have a suitcase of like 200 samples and they were all hideous and I would be like we only want to place the black and the ivory and they'd be like no Chuck no Taylor, you know yeah yeah exactly and I would just be like we don't need skulls and rhinestones <laughs> and like lace prints and whatever I else I'm yeah, like and that was all it. coming. And I had reached this point where I was like, I dread when Converse shows up for an appointment because it is just such an epic bummer. <laughs> um, like just – if they had just been making their classics, I think that their brand would have stayed cooler for even longer yeah. and they probably would have made more money. And so I think that's a really good example for all of you who are out there being makers. Like don't do what Converse did. <laughs> yeah. Actually, that's that speaks for a lot of brands, actually. I mean, a similar thing. I was freelancing with Kate Spade prior to the pandemic, and uh -huh. I was in the sweaters team. It was super fun because it was all, like, 60s-inspired stuff. But at oh, the cool. end of the day, like, what do people want from Kate Spade? They right. want handbags because that's yeah. what they're known for. And yeah. they were trying to do this whole line um of apparel and honestly a lot of it was like really really cute granted i don't really know what they ended up placing orders on in the end i just know from like in the design world like what i saw were like super super cute and they ended up closing their apparel division entirely which is really sad and like a lot of friends or co-workers i had there were out of work after that but like, there's something to be said for like focusing on what you're really good at and not trying to do everything. Um, because at the end of the day, like people want, you know, the things that, that you're, that you're known for that you're really good at. So yeah, yeah. I think that goes for us small makers too. Yeah, totally. Just sure. something for all of us to think about. I mean, you know, I feel like I'm always constantly getting approached for other things I could do with clothes horse. And I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a great idea. Yeah. We should have yeah. a, like, a, and then I'm like, wait a minute. Like, no. Right. And I have people coming to me and being like, oh, you should make this out of towels and this and this and this. And I'm like, I have to really focus on like what, like, <laughs> in order to, to have a sustainable business, I can't just be making like a hundred different one of a kind products. Like that's why I've got like my programs worked out and maybe I'll introduce something new, but like, you know, anyways, I feel like we're, we're going on to a whole other thing now, <laughs> which like but could, could happen like just all day. <laughs> I know, seriously. And you know, we're recording this on my thrifting day. <laughs> yes. You told me, I'm like, I am not getting between anyone in their designated thrifting days. <laughs> it's my one day a week. I'm always like, yeah. oh, Thursday is my day off. It's really not. Just spoiler for everyone. I always work like six hours on Thursday, but that's like a light workload for all the yeah, stuff I have going off. on. Don't worry, guys. I'm totally fine. You know, I had this <laughs> moment yesterday where I was hanging out laundry and I was like, working on close horse energizes me and makes me happy in a way that no other work I've ever done has. Oh. And yes, sometimes I'm tired, but like it doesn't feel like work. It just feels like yeah. I get to explore. I get to learn and explore stuff and exercise my brain and be creative and meet people. And like, doesn't that sound like paradise? <laughs> You've literally created your dream job. I mean, your dream job probably would pay you a little bit more, but <laughs> yes. you've created, you know, like yeah. you're, you're willing to invest 
the time and energy into figuring that out with clothes horse because you're so passionate about it. And that's exactly how I feel about picnic wear too. Like I, I'm, you know, not really like, I need to, you know, figure stuff out a little bit more in the financial front, but like, I know that I'm headed in the right direction. It's the first year in business. It's always a little rocky in terms of finances Mm -hmm. in the beginning, Mm -hmm. but I am so passionate about it that like, I'm not looking elsewhere for other, you know, forms of income and I'm in it, you know? Yeah, that's that's how I feel too. You know what? Like, yeah, of course, ideally this would pay me more money, but I haven't even been making clothes horse for a year and I've already made some like massive progress. And I don't know about you, but I think back to when I got furloughed from my job. I, I was telling Dustin about this, how every day I would experience two huge, overwhelming waves of emotion. The first one was the anxiety about permanently losing my job and what that would do for us financially. Mm-hmm. And I would fret yeah. about that and hope that I would be brought back to work. And then just as rapidly, that would dissipate and the next wave would come and it would be like, oh my God, I don't want to go back to that job. Yeah. What if I have to go back to that job? I hate that job so much. That job for sure. gives me diarrhea literally. And oh yeah. Like, Ugh, anxiety poops, the worst. Yeah, so many anxiety poops. And I was like, <laughs> every day, just like it, it would affect my ability to be productive. And then I started working on Clothes Horse and I was like, oh my God, I have this like other outlet that like pushes those waves away and lets me like really focus on myself. And I think about like all the hard work you've put into picnic wear and how important it is to you. And you wouldn't want to jeopardize that by picking the wrong partners, you know? Yeah, absolutely. So I I just – anyway, I'm glad we had this conversation because I'm totally going to make a video. It's probably going to take a week. Videos are like really time-consuming. Yeah. Because it's like audio, but with video on it. I know. So then I'm like, okay, how's the lighting? What's my face look like? I'm like, I like to do them outside and there's all these roosters. Um, <laughs> there's roosters everywhere out here, guys. I feel like uh, that's very on brand for Clothes Horse, though. I think like, it is, I'd too. I'd be into hearing some roosters in the background. <laughs> Somehow we're like Seeing. an agricultural podcast, too. Um, <laughs> but anyway, um. I'm so glad that we took the time to talk about this, Danny. I think this is so important and I'm excited for people to hear this. Wow. Thank you so much, Danny. I don't know about any of you, but do you ever want to call Danny Danimal? <laughs> I'm just asking. I mean, okay, yes, I do want to call Danny Danimal, but we're not there yet in our relationship. Maybe someday. <laughs> Anyway, I am going to work on a video this week about the things to consider when being approached by one of these brands, because this is really important to me. Also, if somehow you don't know who Danny is, please go follow her on Instagram where you'll find her at Picnicware. Okay, well, now I have two work stories for you to hear. The first is from Elise, and the next is anonymous, but both of them touch on the same idea. So I'm going to play them back to back, and then we'll discuss afterwards. All right, let's go. Hi, Amanda. This is Elise. Um, I am sending in a message for Labor Month. I had posted a little bit about this on Instagram, um, but I figured it might be better as a message. So 
Um, I'm going to talk about my experience working in a very small independent bookstore in Massachusetts. It was owned by uh, this woman and her husband. It's an area where there are very, very few independent bookstores, um, or at least at the time, there was a very low market for used books. Uh, so it was a really affordable and accessible place for people to, you know, come and get books. And especially for the summer reading season, um, it made it very easy for parents to be able to get those books for their kids. So it was really a store that I was really proud to be working at because it, you know, provided such an important service to the community. And, you know, we obviously want to support small businesses as much as humanly possible. Um, so working in one felt like the, the natural way to do that. Unfortunately, it was a very toxic environment. We were, the, the husband and the wife were not on the same page with mostly anything. The wife was uh, consistently expecting that we hide some kind of shady financial situations from her husband. And then the husband would come in and see whatever was going on financially and confront us about it. The The staff was very small. At, at any given time, it could have been um, probably between two and six employees. So just in general, it was it was a really toxic environment. We were all paid minimum wage and expected to work as much as possible. And after I had worked there for a couple of years, I had done a really good job. And the, the owner kind of wanted to step back from having to be at the shop every single day because it was open seven days a week. So I was made the manager of the store. So I oversaw um, the other employees and, you know, was mostly in charge of doing the, you know, um, ordering products and just in general kind of keeping the store in shape because, you know, the books were a mess. Everything was a mess. It was just incredibly disorganized. The major thing that I might have left out was that this store never made a profit in the, you know, 10 years at least that it had existed um, by the time that I got there. So, um, usually every year they would either make zero dollars or most likely they would lose money and they'd continue putting their, you know, their personal finances into the business to keep it going. So the, the year that they decided to promote me to manager, they decided that we were going to make $10,000 in sales that year. And just to reiterate, they had never made a profit in 10 years. So now suddenly we go from, you know, being expected to, not make any profit to making a profit of $10,000 um, without changing anything fu fundamental about the business whatsoever. So there's a lot of pressure on me to do this because, you know, being made manager for them meant that I would turn the store around. And they also didn't increase my wages. I was still being paid minimum wage and still being expected to be there as, as often as possible. Obviously, we did not get any benefits. <laughs> Obviously, I was working more than 40 hours a week and I could only put in for 39 so I wouldn't have to get benefits. Eventually, the owner's husband called me into the back room one time and this husband he was just kind of a gross shitty person anyway <laughs> um he was very very pushy and um not necessarily a, a guy that you feel comfortable being around so he pulled me into the back room um and he kind of got up all, all up in my face and was yelling at me and stuff about how why did they promote me to manager if they you know weren't weren't seeing the the target goals that they had um, put in place for me. And, you know, I 
became very honest with him at that point and said, you know, nothing's changed. So I don't believe that I should be expected to increase our profits from zero to 10,000. And so he, he said that I would be put on probation as the manager. Um, and if I did not start making, uh, meeting those targets, they would reevaluate my position. At that point, I, just quit. (laughs) I didn't give my notice, you know, which wasn't the best, but also they had so little regard for their employees that, um, I didn't feel too, too bad about it. I wrote kind of a scathing goodbye letter and that felt pretty good. But in general, it was just like a very, um, very negative experience. The, the few years that I worked there because I believed so much in supporting small businesses and, and, you know, working for a small business and making sure that this resource was available for the community. Um, because the, the small city I lived in Worcester, Massachusetts, the income level is very, very low. Um, so for a lot of people in communities that live in Worcester, you know, buying used books at, you know, two dollars or or even sometimes like one dollar, five dollars, you know, that was their only option. So I really believed in the mission and I really wanted to do everything that I could to make this, you know, sustainable. The owners of the store did not make it sustainable for the workers to be, you know, continuing to to put in the effort that they were expected to put in. And it was just it was so disappointing because, you know, the the gaslighting that we experienced there was something that I only really thought existed in corporate environments and in, in big companies. And it, it turned out to be so wrong. <laughs> so yeah, it was, it was a big disappointment. It made it really hard for me to consider working for other small businesses because, um, I know that this is a trend, which, you know, it, it's hard, especially when you're kind of, fixated with the the retail experience and you you go through something like this um and after that I was really wary of of you know committing myself to working um in in a similar small business um because it frankly it was a very traumatizing experience the you know the owners were incredibly abusive and used you know gaslighting tactics and things like that you know pretty much constantly Um, so luckily at that point I was able to return to school and and get my master's. So I I got a a different job at the school, but yeah, it was, it was a really, uh, negative experience and it's just such a good example of how in any kind of work environment, you're often expected to put in far more than you are given in return, um, simply for the mission of, you know, the mission of the small business or the, you know, because you care. (laughs) We were also expected to be posting, you know, like things on our private Instagrams and promoting the store and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Our lives were kind of supposed to be devoted to it. The bottom line is that sometimes the the worst kind of workplace abuse um, and gaslighting can happen from small businesses. Um, And I think that's an important thing to acknowledge that, you know, not every small business is going to be a, a business that cares about its employees. And I think that's a really tough pill to swallow for a lot of us who, you know, try as hard as humanly possible to support small businesses, but know that it can be incredibly challenging and give you a lot of guilt and mixed feelings about working there. Thanks so much for doing everything you do. And I love your podcast. Bye. Hi, Amanda. I wanted to call in about this labor month topic. I had a job that I was working before the pandemic started. 
And I'd been there for a couple of years, and I was working as a kitchen manager. And it was a really environmentally aligned kind of company doing food and food deliveries and uh, talking about like local farming and urban farming and everything about the company when I started was really well aligned. But I realized after starting to work for them that the actual working conditions were a lot different than the values of the company. So I had decided to run a political campaign in 2019, and I was actually running for a local Green Party in um, Toronto, and the company knew that that was my plan, and everybody was really supportive in theory, and I got some donations from some of the people that I worked with, um, and it seemed really well aligned with their company values. But as I was in the middle of campaigning and needing to take some more time to myself, um, they let me go abruptly without any warning. And it kind of took the wind out of my sail when I was in the middle of this campaign. And they decided to let me go only two weeks before the election. So just as I was feeling really excited about my progress, um, they let me know that I'd been fired. And so that was a little confusing for me, but I was, um, I just had to dust myself off and kind of keep on moving because I couldn't let that get in the way of my campaign. And then after that fact, um, COVID started to happen, um, in the wintertime. And so it was just kind of blessing in disguise because I realized that I was really lucky to have been let go at the time that I was because shortly after they let me go, all of this COVID stuff started to lock the city down. And while everybody was staying at home and taking care of themselves, uh, the people who still worked for that company were working around the clock, working more hours than ever, trapped in a warehouse, which I always call the stainless steel cage, and making more food than ever before because they were doing food delivery um, bags. And all of a sudden, everybody wanted their food delivered and they couldn't walk to the grocery store. So this is a classic example of this disaster capitalism. And just the other day, I really got the um, validation that I, I wanted uh, years later. I ended up running into somebody who was working for the same company and actually was hired on to replace me when they fired me from my job. Um, and we just got to chatting, not knowing each other. And she said, oh, I just quit my job today. And it turns out that that's the same job that she quit. And I was like, I can't believe that. That's where I used to work. And she said, oh, my gosh, are you the person who ran the political campaign? I'm like, yeah, that's me. And she's like, oh, well, yeah, I was I was brought on to replace you. 
It turns out that just like I suspected, people were working crazy hours. They were trying to break people's stay-at-home orders and pull people back in for shifts while they were supposed to be quarantining. They were, you know, cheating people out of getting paid for getting their vaccines. And there was all of these kind of shady things. And she had all of the same gripes with the company that I did. And I finally felt like, oh, my God, maybe um, there was something to this and I wasn't being crazy. Because when I tried to make a point of following up and seeing if I had been let wrongly let go, I didn't feel like I had any avenues to take. And there wasn't anybody to support me. And when I asked um, labor, like labor laws and stuff, they're like, oh, there's nothing that we can do for you. So anyways, long story short, there's a lot of these companies that try and greenwash themselves and sell themselves as good companies. And under that guise, they're exploiting their workers. And a lot of the people who worked for this company were single mothers of color that were new immigrants, didn't have a lot of autonomy to speak up, uh, didn't have the same kind of leverage as even I did. And even in my position, I felt like I was wrongly let go. And when it came down to it, I realized that the reason they let me go was always because it wasn't good for the bottom line. And they were just trying to save as much money as they possibly could. And they thought that I wasn't worth paying while I was doing my campaign. So I I understand from a business standpoint that um, you want the perfect clogs in the machine to make these corporations run. But I definitely um, wish that the workers there had uh, better standards. And when you talked about having a union, this is where unions come in. Um, because I know a lot of people are treated poorly and they don't have any course of action. And I'm grateful to be working at a similar kind of organization that does food security work, but that they have just unionized for this same reason. So at least for a person like me who does part-time work, I have some rights. Um, and if I'm not getting enough shifts or I have in, insecure scheduling or anything like that, um, a lot of what the union is doing is trying to protect workers just like me. So. Wow. So much to break down here, right? And I just have to say again, thank you to everyone who's been sending me your stories. They are really, they're giving me this sort of like idea fuel that I need this month to ensure that I can address all of the different ways that workers are exploited in this world. So thank you. Thank you to all of you. And thank you to all of you who haven't sent me your stories yet, but will. Let's start with this idea that small businesses might be better employers than big businesses. In my experience, that is fundamentally untrue. I worked for a small restaurant where the owner grabbed my ass every time he walked by. 
I've worked for several small stores where the owner would like scream at us anytime he had a chance. He refused to pay any of us more than minimum wage. He could kind of give us our paychecks whenever he felt like it, no matter how much we sacrificed to help him out. And let's put a pin in that idea of sacrifice because we need to talk about that a lot more. Even the worst job that I have ever had was a small startup And it was a nightmare with no HR staff to kind of keep things in check a little bit. I know, I know, I'm going to talk about HR in the future because there are, I've had some weird experiences with them at other companies and, you know, the general vibe about HR is that they're there to, you know, keep the corporate interests in mind, right, to protect the corporation. But sometimes it's just nice to have someone to go to about things, right? That didn't happen at this place. That meant the CEO can make major policy changes on a whim play favorites to an extreme. Like, for example, one time she threw a party at her house and invited everyone who worked in the office, about 10 people, except for me and my two-person team. That's the kind of bullshit that happens in a small business. Assholes are everywhere, and even though I always prefer to give my money to a small business over a big corporation, the moment I hear something bad about a business, I can never give them money again, no matter what the size of that business. It feels like the right thing to me, and it feels like I'm standing in solidarity with all the other people out there who have had a shitty job. I think I've mentioned this before, but I will even go as far as reading the Glassdoor reviews for brands that are new to me, and I check out Google and Yelp reviews too, because I don't want to give my money to someone who is abusive, racist, classist, sexist, and shitty, shitty encompassing all the other bad biases that happen in the workplace, but shouldn't happen in the workplace. Well, shouldn't happen anywhere, but especially not at work. You should be protected there. Okay, let's talk about this idea of your employer having a mission. I read an article from The Nation called Big Business Has a New Scam, The Purpose Paradigm. Sometimes, I think it's just for my mental health, I have to see if I'm the only person out there taking issue with something. Like, am I being too idealistic, too over the top? It boosts my morale to realize that I'm not. It wouldn't change my mind if I couldn't find someone else who agreed with me, but I still just like to read other thoughts on my ideas. So I found this article from The Nation, and in it, I learned some key facts. First, in the UK, the Maoist millennial made headlines in early 2018 after a survey claimed that 24% of its respondents, so about a quarter, these respondents were all between 18 and 24 years old, they viewed, quote, big business as the most dangerous force in the world today. Later that year, in the United States, a survey conducted by the University of Chicago found that most millennials across all race and ethnicity, quote, believe a strong government rather than a free market approach is needed to address today's complex economic problems. What do these two surveys mean? They mean millennials think big business is sketchy, corrupt, unethical, and untrustworthy, and that we need government intervention to force these companies to care more about the planet and its people. 
(laughs) Nothing that we don't talk about here all the time, but you have to admit, it's nice to hear that we're not alone. (laughs) But here's the problem for big business. They need our trust, our respect, our loyalty, not only to sell us things over and over again, but also to get us to work for them. And they need us to work for them, even if they don't seem to treat us as if they actually do. Trust me, your employer needs you. All of your employers, all of our employers, they need us. That's right. Business needs all of us. Our employers need us, they need our money, and they need our labor. And that's where all of this noble mission bullshit comes into play. Convince customers that you're up to something good, anything other than just selling stuff to make profit so that they will buy more and more. It's this classic smoke and mirrors that we know as greenwashing and ethical washing. And you've seen how that plays out on the customer side, right? Like how we are exposed to that as customers. But our other identity in the eyes of business, listen, I know we all have many other identities and qualities, but our other identity in the eyes of big business is that of worker. We're consumers and we're workers. These quasi-missions this so-called purpose beyond, you know, selling stuff, that's to keep workers engaged, to make them accept lesser circumstances of employment because they feel like their hard work is for something greater than them. We're all good people. We want to do the best for the world around us. And that, that is why greenwashing and everything related to greenwashing is so successful. The idea of a mission is so different than just work. Say it out loud to yourself. Going on a mission versus going to work. One of them, you pick the one, implies heroism and adventure, while the other implies a lean cuisine eaten for lunch in a smelly break room. When you take on the mission, you, yes, you, are the intrepid crusader, changing the world just by answering emails or writing the staff schedule. You're not at work. You're on a mission. Well, fuck your employer's mission. Now, if you work for a nonprofit, I understand that your employer is actually mission-focused, but even if you work for a nonprofit that is doing good things for the world, that doesn't mean that you should be sacrificing your health, both mental and physical. You shouldn't be sacrificing your security, your happiness, any of that for this mission. Let's just say this now before I continue. You should never be sacrificing for your job. Maybe if you own the company, sure. But if you're an employee, Fuck that mission and fuck sacrificing your short life on earth for your job. I've had a lot of jobs with missions. One had an actual mission statement that was written on the chalkboard wall in the lunchroom and we were required to recite it together at every all hands meeting. That doesn't sound culty, does it? (laughs) The, The mission statement was something like empower women to live the best life possible. Wow, 
Did I work at Planned Parenthood or maybe some sort of mentoring group or maybe an organization that opened schools for girls in Africa? No. No, actually, it was a clothing company selling fast fashion that was made primarily by female workers paid poverty wages. No one seemed to care about empowering those women to live the best life possible. No one seemed to worry about all of the women across the planet affected by climate change, which, you know, fast fashion is exacerbating with all of its wasteful practices. And most importantly, 95% of the people working in that office, myself included, were women, and no one seemed to be thinking about empowering us to live our best lives. Instead, we worked in an office that was infested with fleas. We were paid substantially under standard for the industry. We were expected to answer emails all weekend, work 12 plus hour days, and put work before anything else. Taking PTO was nearly impossible, and it was expected that I would work through every vacation or sick day. This same company had allegedly fired pregnant women. Where were these women we were empowering? Because I didn't know them, and if they were the customer, how were we empowering them by selling them low-quality, poorly-fitting fast fashion? Where's the empowerment there? Oh, that's right. There weren't any women that we were empowering because the true mission, the true mission of my job was working as hard as possible to help our company make as much money as possible. That was the mission. And we were just the fuel to make it happen. If you work for a for-profit company, which you probably do, don't let them get into your head with some we're on a mission bullshit. That mission is merely propaganda to get you to work harder for less in return. It's to get you to accept less benefits, less pay, less quality of life, and oh yeah, that mission is supposed to make it easier to get you accustomed to always prioritizing work over everything else in your life. You, the employee, you are being mission washed. But the real mission of any of these companies isn't making the world better. It's making money, even if the company is bad at making money, like Elise's bookstore. The goal is still making money, and anything else that comes along with that, you know, offering books at a lower price to people who don't normally have access to books, that's just a side effect. If your employer is really, actually, truly on a mission to improve something about the world, if they really mean what they are saying, then they should be caring for you too. And if it's a good company, they already are. You should have a good work-life balance, a living wage, good benefits, and opportunities and training for growth. You shouldn't be a disposable means to an end. You should be an investment for that company, a valuable participant in the mission. And I'm just going to say this again. It's possible to be both profitable and not be an asshole to all of the employees whose hard work makes all of the profit possible. I promise you. It means slightly less profit, but it still means the company can make some major money. But greed, greed steps in and says, no, let's just make a little bit more profit by taking this away from the workers, and then we'll take that, and then we'll take that. 
Do you remember that moment when you learned that the tooth fairy wasn't real? (laughs) I hope I didn't just ruin that for any of you. (laughs) Do you remember the first time you learned your parents were flawed humans or that your teacher didn't actually live at the school? I, I thought my teacher lived at the school. I thought she... She had this closet behind her desk, and I thought it opened up, and a bed flipped out, and maybe it was a lot bigger than it actually was, and there was, like, you know, a shower and, I don't know, a TV and stuff in there. (laughs) I can't be the only one, right? Anyway, (laughs) do you remember that feeling of abject disappointment that you had been living a lie, a small one, but nonetheless, a belief that was just one of many pillars of your day-to-day life had just fallen over? It sucks. It's disappointing can make you angry. Well, multiply that feeling by 1,000, and that's the moment you realize that your company isn't on a mission at all, that they've been tricking you all along, and all that time that you missed hanging out with your partner or your friends or your kids, all those times you were sick or tired and just needed a break, all of those emails that you read and replied to while you were in a hotel room on your dream vacation, 6,000 miles away, all of that was for nothing. Or well, more accurately, it wasn't for you. It wasn't for the world. It was so your company could make more money. All that sacrifice for nothing. So much wasted time. So much work. So many feelings. It's enraging, isn't it? And you feel like you were scammed that your innate goodness was exploited. Your employer is a grifter and you were just another mark. I had a friend with a boyfriend who cheated on her constantly and she said, it's not the actual sex with other women that upsets me the most. It's the implication that he thinks I'm stupid enough to believe his lies. Let's say it all together now. Fuck your employer's mission. Elise said something great in the email that accompanied her message. Now that I hear more people reaching for that word, mission, to describe one of the ways that we become indoctrinated into sacrificing our value for the sake of business, it starts to sound really culty. Sacrificing our value for the sake of a business. We will not sacrifice our value for business. Can we all get matching tattoos that say that? Because I'm in. We have so much value. We have so much life to live. And we should never, ever sacrifice even one bit of that. So executives can take a bigger bonus, or the CEO can open more stores, or your boss can buy your kid a horse. Our value is so much bigger, so unmeasurable, but certainly gargantuan when placed next to the just like tiny little grain of sand that is our job. Thank you to Elise and our other anonymous caller. Thank you to Danny and Shelby. And thank you to all of you who listen to me rant and rave. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. If you like what you're hearing, as always, rate and review on Apple Podcasts and tell your friends. Don't forget, find us on Instagram at Close Horse Podcast. And every Friday, I do a live Q&A at 8 p.m. Eastern time. I did just skip this most recent Friday because, well, I needed to go to a night yard sale. I told you I have yard sale fever. (laughs) 
<laughs> but I'll be back this week. And I'm contemplating, I'm not 100% confirming it, but I might go full Lolita again just for fun. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group. We have a lot of members now. And please listen to The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim. It's my fun show. (laughs) Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. (laughs) 